Talking Eugene, and I'm the Movie Muse. If you'd like to know, Good morning, Petaluma. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP Petaluma. And I am Rabbi Ted Feldman from B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and also chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. And we're here again to meet with members of our community who make a contribution to our lives every day, many of whom we don't know about those contributions. So we have the wonderful opportunity here to be able to uh, think about it. Uh, Before we begin our first interview, I wanted to mention that there will be an emergency preparedness fair up in uh, Santa Rosa this Sunday, the 23rd, uh, at Congregation Beth Ami, uh, sponsored by the Jewish community, but open to all from 1 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's an opportunity to help us prepare for those difficult moments that probably will come our way at some point. I want to welcome to the studio today uh, Peggy Sabera. Peggy is a member of the Petaluma Community Relations Council Coordinating Committee, a local activist, uh, a local artist. I have to get the A straight, activist and artist. That's a good title for your business card. (laughs) So Peggy, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much, Ted. It's uh, a joy to be here. It's great to have you here. And uh, so my usual routine is to find out in the beginning a little bit about you, where you grew up, what uh, what brought you to Petaluma, all those kinds of good things. Well, I uh, grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas and um, in a very tight-knit family, Uh an artistic family. Uh, My mother being an artist, my sisters both having their degrees in art. I was uh, the black sheep in in terms of that early on. I uh, studied psychology early on, but was highly influenced by my mother and um, influenced by her unique way of being in the world in the 50s and 60s. Uh, She was a spiritual pilgrim, I would say. She taught us all that our relationship with God was um, very personal. And she meditated every day in a time when, well, she didn't even tell people about it because it was kind of unusual. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Texas uh, with the influence of my father also, who was um, a pilot in World War II. And I think he gave me the straight and narrow that gave me the opportunity to know how to be in business with my own company, my, my consulting company. And my mother gave me the um, community, spiritual, um, artistic, beauty orientation in my life. So these, both of these themes have been very strong for me. It's amazing how uh, we spend our adolescence rebelling against our parental units, and then we come back in life and recognize that there had been some influence that was positive and important for us in our lives. That sounds like that's your story, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. I've been so influenced yeah. in such positive ways. Were you rebellious at any point? No. No, no. No, I... You walked the straight and narrow. That was easier to do in the 50s, don't you think? Uh, Going the straight and narrow. It was until the 60s. In the 60s, um, my young husband and I did uh, move away from all that was traditional, and we went 
we were part of the movement that went back to the land mm -hmm. and uh, living in community, uh, raising all of our own food, raising our children, our wonderful son and daughter, in uh, uh, a very communal situation. And I think that, with my degree in psychology, I began to look at, with others, look at how people communicate and create community. And that moved me into the business world in the areas of leadership development and team development. So I think all my work, both my volunteerism and my business, has been about helping people to have conversations that are difficult to have or to look at possibilities and visions that they carry in their hearts but don't know how to fulfill. And that professional career, is that consulting business been there the whole, your whole journey? Yeah, uh, well, I worked in organizations first. Uh -huh. I learned a lot in banking, in the hotel industry, and working in human resources and management development. And then I moved out on my own and created, uh, with friends, uh, Renaissance Consulting Group. And my son is now uh, part of my business. And so we offer leadership coaching. Leadership coaching. So have you spoken to Washington lately? Oh, no. no oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I, I, I work <laughs> on much more of a local level and uh, uh, much more modestly. Uh-huh. So, so how, you know, one of the things about leadership development that I've noticed over the years is that there are there are truly are generational issues around that and how each generation that has unfolded over our lifetimes looks at leadership, looks at the world, looks at business uh, in varying ways, but based on their personal needs. What's, what's been your observations on yes. that? You know, because I was always invited in to work with a team to help them with their relationships with one, with one another, I always saw, no matter what level or where I was working, that people were actually very much alike. And that I learned that the, the skill of group communication is much more difficult than one-on-one -on -one communication. And the skills to develop that are difficult. I don't think that we naturally know how to collaborate without a little bit of guidance, either from um, a spiritual perspective of what our relationship truly is with one another, and that comes through uh, in my study of Hinduism and Buddhism, Judaism, and Christianity. I think it's a, a, a place where there is often an acceptance of our connection with one another. Now, not, it's not always lived out, but it has been a thread that has moved through my life is that this is the way things could be. Well, that, that notion of connection obviously is very important. I, I just think that there are generational uh, differences yes. among how people, what kind of connections they want, how they go about making the connections, and maybe ultimately what those connections mean for them in their lives and how they, the connections serve them. Yes. Uh, I remember going back in oh, two uh, what, 2001, 2002 to a conference that was on, and the, one of the seminars was on generational differences. Yes. And it said that uh, our older generation 
that younger generations at that point uh, couldn't understand why we wanted responses to our emails. That is, when you work in a company and you send an email to somebody giving them a piece of information uh, where there's no response technically required, you haven't asked a question, but a thank you or I got it, appreciate your sending it kind of note that uh, the younger generation didn't feel necessity of expressing in that way. I mean, in some ways, that's a relational piece, too, that talks about relations. So on the way back from that conference, the two guys getting off the airplane behind me were the younger generation. One turns to the other and says, can you believe me? My boss wants me to answer every email and respond to every email he sends. He wants thank yous and pleases and all that kind of stuff. It's so disgusting. Right, so that I had just learned it. So I've been, you know, trying to be it's help me be a little conscious of those. Have you noticed that stuff? And maybe not from a generational point of view, but from a corporate cultural point of view. Well, right now I'm working with a large organization, um, helping them to plan their priorities conference, and there'll be 150 employees from all over the state, and these are attorneys helping uh, the most needy people in California. Well, I'm working with a committee of 10 people, and all of the emails are answered within a day between all of us. So I am not experiencing that with this nonprofit organization that I'm working with. However, I know that with my own children and with other volunteer groups, it's best if I text people. So I have been shifting from email to texting. Yeah, that's a big shift that people are often requesting the texting. Yeah. So, um, so do you have a, a degree? Well, your psychology was it in organizational psychology, or just a bachelor's in psychology? What, what it, was it was in counseling. In counseling psychology. And I really um, decided early on that I wanted to work with groups uh-huh. rather than individuals. And that is how uh, this thread that's been present in my life, all my life, I started with the Girl Scouts. I um, loved going to my two-week camping experience every year. And that is where I really developed a sense of community and so wanted to work in communities, in uh, groups. And so the psychology has been very, very important, uh, but it's taken me into... uh, Working with groups rather than individuals. Well, the book, Working with Groups, and we, you and I have been involved in this uh, uh, little notion of empathetic mm-hmm. listening that Luz Wire has brought to yes. us and yes. is bringing to the community at Aquas on a monthly basis. I was just, we were just there the other night. Wonderful. So what's that, what's that empathetic listening? Do you use that in your corp, for your clients? How does that work? Yes, yes. Um, we get together, and usually I do a, an assessment first for the group that I'm working with. What are the challenges? What are you proud of within the group? And then we get together to discuss things, and the problems arise. And so part of the process is to use the real challenges that a business has, the real daily challenges, and to practice the empathetic listening. And um, a a process that I've been very um, uh, thankful to know more about is dialogue. And there's a certain process developed at MIT and shared throughout the consulting world. And it 
it emphasizes bringing the group together in circle and practicing the skills of inquiry and advocacy so that when even when you are strong about some point of view, you advocate for it and then you inquire into it yourself and invite others. So it's sort of like saying, here's my proposal. Does anyone want to shoot holes in it? Well, that's like a skill that takes a while to develop. Is it's also a skill that requires the person to have a strong enough ego not to be uh, to be open for criticism and putting holes in an idea. That's, that's, right. that's, that's an important piece of that, too. Yeah. And learning that skill in a group, we have to go slowly. You have to be focused on the problems at hand, and then you have to invite the inquiry from all points of view. And so you get all points of view, and it's just amazing. Time and time again, the group makes it an easy decision by consensus once they have heard everybody's point of view. Because a lot of times organizations are asked, one department is asked to have a slightly different goal than another department. Marketing wants to get the product out immediately and operations needs time to develop it. So that, and of course then your skills come in and your listening skills. Uh, I just love the, uh, uh, the piece of the empathetic listening is that I like the most is this uh, that one person listens to the speaker and none of the people in the group can actually respond to the speaker. They just have to listen. And the listener, the assigned listener, just has to feedback what he or she heard. And as opposed to a conversation going back and forth where I can interrupt you or I can disagree with you, there's none of that. And so the idea of listening to another person without spending time in our minds preparing what we're going to tell that person is an amazing thing. It's yeah. amazing, and you describe it very well. And um, this group work has led to my participation in various women's circles uh -huh. where we have met um, seriously for 20 years. I have uh, women's groups that I've been part of for 20 years. And one of my friends uh, always says, we listen each other into being. Mm -hmm. Through our listening that you, you're speaking of, the person speaking discovers who they are by way of being listened to in the community, in the circle, in the group. So we actually find out who we are when we're being listened to. It's pretty awesome, as you mentioned. Yeah, it is a pretty awesome experience. We, we went through that uh, two nights ago, right? Two yes, nights ago. yes. Uh, so are th these women's groups part of your political activism, or is it, uh, do you see them as just a personal growth piece, and are there special agendas in, in these groups that you're in? Yes. One, I'm in three different women's circles, and um, one of them has been a lifelong uh, exploration on becoming, uh, sharing what it is to be a woman. And we're multi-generational from different cultural backgrounds, and we've been sharing for 20 years, and such a learning. And from that also grew two other circles. I put my head together with other women worldwide, and we started what was called the Million Circle, seeding and nurturing women's circles throughout the world. And in fact, uh, we meet once a year with women from all over, 
and we've taken the circle work to the United Nations Conference on the Status of Women. So we've been able to introduce this process of women's circles to women in Africa who have not known this resource, or women in Costa Rica or Ireland. Another circle started by one of the same members that's in both of these two circles is the Women Eradicating Racism. It's a circle that is, uh, the leadership has grown out of the East Bay here in the Bay Area. Uh, African-American women who have had substantial positions as facilitators in, in our uh, larger community in the Bay Area. We sit together and share stories in a way that very few people have the opportunity to do. Sitting together for three days and being able to listen and learn as a white woman what the path has been for these black women, brown women in our community. And it takes a few years for people to be able to get as honest as they need to be. And it takes some real holding because it's not comfortable. So the other night when we had these uh, open conversations at Aquas, where we were offered the topic of unconscious bias, yes. yeah, so that, that's a piece of what you were doing in, in this women's circle in which you're in now. Yes, yeah. peeling back the layers. I mean, you just can't even know what your unconscious bias is almost until somebody helps you see it. Did you get very far in your group the other night? We did. You did. We, uh, my group uh, switched within about two or three minutes to some other, branched off into other oh. areas because it's a tough one to get to that. How do you, you know, getting into the notion of unconscious bias? Yeah. Well, um, one of the members in my group was um, a yogi and um, uh, newly arrived to Petaluma. And he is the minister of a church here. Mm -hmm. And he invited us quickly to, uh, in sharing his own thinking, that unconscious bias, what's beneath that, is a deep-seated belief that there's right and wrong. That I'm right and someone else is wrong. My way is good. Some other way is not good. And we, this is so deeply held because it's just the way it is. We grew up with our family knowing what was right and wrong. And so we don't, it's like a fish swimming in water. We don't even know how attached we are to our sense of rightness and wrongness. That's interesting. Of course, he'll be on this program on Thursday, August 1st. So our listeners will have the opportunity, maybe if I remember that far, uh, I will be happy to get back into that discussion a little bit with him. Yes. Because he's a wonderful human being, and it's been wonderful getting to know him. He's new in town. Uh, but so this notion of uh, bias, you brought that whole thing to uh, the Petaluma Community Relations Council uh, early on this past year, and uh, it led us to be dealing, we had this whole mm -hmm. seminar back in January, uh, focusing on our school system and focusing on uh, working with the principals, with leadership, with students who were experiencing bias in the schools. What was it like to, for you to see that happening since you've been working in this work for so long? 
Well, I had had a vision of bringing a dialogue on race to Petaluma, and my dear friend uh, Faith Ross joined me in that vision. And uh, we brought that idea to the Petaluma Community Relations Council, and they ran with it, expanded it, and, and drew upon the substantive relationships that, that the council has with the chief of police, with the superintendent of schools, with uh, other leaders in the schools. And through the council, we, we were able to create a dialogue for our community. And it started by hearing first from the students. I mean, most people I've talked to in Petaluma have not been aware that students in our schools are experiencing racism every day. And at the, at the library that night with 100 people, the students, we broke into small groups and intimate groups. We leaned in and listened to each other. And the students had more courage to share their true experiences. And I think we're waking up to something, um, I am, in, in our community here in Petaluma. Well, during our second segment today, Dr. Dan Osterman will be with us. He's the new principal at Casa Grande High School, which was involved in the program that night. So I probably will have a little bit of time to discuss where they are now and what the follow-up has been since that program. Wonderful. So as we only have ooh, uh, five, six minutes left here, I want to focus and learn a little bit more about Peggy as the artist. Oh, dear. Tell mm-hmm. me about your art and what kind of art do you do and how did you get into it and what does it mean to you? That's really the important part. Yeah. Well, when I think about my art, I have thought about this, and I even have written about it. I think my passion for painting nature came as a young woman in the Girl Scouts. I was passionate about getting those merit badges where I learned about the insects and the land and the, and the water and, and all of these things. So that was both nature and community. And my mother's influence as an artist uh, lives in me, and my sister's ease with art. Um, I did not paint or draw a single thing until I happened to be at a friend's workshop in France when I was 55 years old. Mm. And I, she, she taught a, a beautiful way of expressionist, colorful art that was, for me, something that resonated and I picked up on it. And then I began to develop a more serious um, passion for painting the landscape of Northern California. And so painting the vineyards, um, I also painted last year three paintings of the land burning and nothing but fire. So my connection with the land is so big, and I think that's fueled also by my back-to-the-land experience in my early 20s. But my art now, I notice that I keep painting beautiful scenes. I mean, that's the, the, the intention. The beauty of our earth. And I, I listen often to Jennifer Breeson's song, Praises for the Earth, Praises for the World. And she says, we have a beautiful mother. This is so big in me that I, 
I, I try to paint more political paintings, or I try to bring up some other theme, and what comes out is a tree or a mountain. And so it seems to be in me this um, this using oils and acrylics to, to paint nature. So here's a, a question I often think about when speaking to somebody who does artistic things. Does the inspiration come from outside or inside? That's a good question. Let's say I go to Hawaii and I take a picture of a dramatic sunset and I bring that picture home and I get a big canvas five foot tall and, and I'm, I'm painting that. As I'm painting it, I can smell the aromas. I can feel the moisture of the air. I, I am in that ocean or on that beach. So it's both. I'm looking at that photo, but I'm, in the sensate way, I am feeling the whole scene in my body, and that I love to paint a five-foot canvas, which I often do, because I'm in it. You're in it because it's a little bit <laughs> shorter than you are, but uh, around your height, Exactly. Right? Around your height. It, it, it does remind me, in, in Jewish tradition, some of the Psalms say uh, in Hebrew, a psalm to David, and the others say to David a psalm, and the rabbis ask the question, oh. you know, how did that psalm get into him, right? Yeah. Did it come from inside? And sometimes the psalm came, the poetry of the book of Psalms came from inside, and sometimes the poetry came from the outside. God inspired, if you want to look at it from that perspective, inspiration from the world, from nature, however. And so it does work in both directions. Yes. And uh, sometimes it's a combination. Sometimes it's totally outside of you, and you feel—I think you feel an impetus. I have to paint that because I just saw it, and it's inspiring me. Or it's an inside. You're looking for something to express, and this this picture in your mind of nature comes together with what you're now painting. Yes. And so that—that's how it works. It's an amazing piece. You know, uh, William Stafford wrote a poem called The Way It Is, and he speaks of the thread, that if we follow this thread throughout our lives, it will take us in different places, but to keep our eye on that thread, that passion within that we're here to express. And that's a beautiful expression and a beautiful way to end a very brief and quick interview here today. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you for uh, being in the studio today and sharing your background and your your inspirations uh, with our listeners. And I would like to invite our listeners back to our second segment where we'll meet Dr. Dan Osterman from Casa Grande High School. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP Petaluma.
Good. You doing okay today? Yeah. How about you? All right. All right. Good. Good. Good time today. Good morning, Petaluma. Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. We're back in the KPCH studios uh, for our second segment today, and I want to welcome Dr. Dan Osterman, the newly appointed principal of Casa Grande High School here in Petaluma. Uh, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Ted. Great to be here. It's good to have you here. And um, yeah, I've uh, we've uh, been dealing with school issues for a while here on the program, in addition to the Petaluma uh, Community Relations Council. So it's great to have you here. And um, are you great excited? Thank you. You excited about your new position? Oh, absolutely. Very excited and truly honored and humbled as well. Great. Have you repainted the school and uh, re- redone all the sidewalks and everything? Not yet. Okay. I'm working on that. You're That's working on, on that sure. part, huh? Yeah, okay. we'll get back to you. Yeah. So, um, our usual format is to learn a little bit about your background Great. and then get us into some of the important things that are happening in our schools and in your school in particular. So, where do you come from? Where did you grow up? What? How did you get to Petaluma? All that kind of good stuff. Sure. Um, I'm a native of Oregon, although I was born in California, but I grew up in Oregon in a small town in northeast Oregon in the Blue Mountains called La Grande. And I fell in love with music at an early age. Um, I started on the violin. I switched to the trombone. Um, I knew early on, probably middle school, early high school, that I wanted to make music a career and a life. Um, so I went to college, and I was lucky enough to study with a great trombone teacher in Colorado, University of Northern Colorado, um, named Buddy Baker. And I did that for two years. I was a classical trombone performance major. Um, I played jazz, too, but wanted to play more jazz, and that was really my my heart and soul. So I uh, transferred to California Institute of the Arts in Los Angeles and immediately started working professionally as a trombonist. 
and then worked uh, also over time as a composer and arranger, um, a music copyist, producer, a number of things. Um, I did that for about 10 years, and I started teaching um, a little bit as well throughout that, but mostly I was I was really focused on being a musician, and I loved the, the um, being part of that and, and really expressing myself and, and, and wrote a lot of my own music as well, including I uh, wrote a piece uh, for UCLA, it was premiered um, for orchestra. Um, I produced several records uh, of my own and, and for other artists as well. And then was on stage with, with many, many people, uh, including Sting, um, uh, Burt Bacharach, uh, Gladys Knight. I've recorded with the Black Eyed Peas and Fishbone. and I just had an incredible, um, very lively career early on and, and uh, with my own groups as well. So how did I get an education is a yeah. really good question, right? So, I, again, I, I started teaching kind of as a supplemental thing and because I could and I enjoyed working with kids. I did it right away. I started working uh, with the UCLA enrichment program in South Central Los Angeles um, pretty much as soon as I arrived in L.A., which was 1997. Um, and then gradually got into it more. And then uh, when I participated in the Henry Mancini Institute in the summer of 2004, um, that's really when my career um, pathway started taking a turn. And I, I started teaching even more. And they invited me to design some of their educational programs. And these were after-school enrichment programs for elementary students. So what I would do is come in and do 10-week programs developing choirs. Um, in schools across LA, and I did it for dozens of schools over the course of several years, and and again, just kind of a gradually more and more um, loving working with with students and with young people um, through music and building community through music and and music education. And then uh, at one point, I just decided I was done with the freelance lifestyle of of being a musician and um, the pressure of that and the the schedule as well. And I just shifted gears, and I and uh, been on that pathway ever since. And um, seven years ago, I um, had the opportunity to uh, develop a new, a brand new music program for a very interesting campus for Los Angeles Unified School District, six hundred and fifty thousand students, a little different than Petaluma City Schools, <laughs> and uh, five high, five small high schools on this big two thousand student campus. And and at that same time, I started my doctorate. And um, I knew at that time I was I was uh, aiming for a, for a career as an administrator, and so that was seven years ago. And now, um, taking my first principalship, and it's um, it's amazing to to look back and kind of see the pathway and and reflect on that. Some of it is which is surprising even to me, um, but also uh, work I'm super proud of as well. That's a, wow! That's quite a path. That's uh, quite a path and a big change course, in the middle of that. Uh, did you know Assistant Superintendent Matthew Harris when he was in L.A.? Because I think he worked in that part of the world, too. It's a big, I understand it's a big place. No, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't know him as well. I think he worked somewhere on the west side of yeah. town where my, I was mostly concentrated in, in uh, East L.A., South Central, uh -huh. Northeast L.A., uh, by and large. So what was the spark about the kids? I mean, it takes a certain mentality, a certain patience, um, uh, and certainly moving from a place where 
you're being watched for your musical talent and etc. And you're kind of center, you're, you're being looked at to somebody who's under scrutiny in a, in a very different way when you're providing educational leadership. What was that like? So are you talking about being a teacher or, yeah, being or a now teacher being or an administrator? Both. I mean, it, it, it applies to both of those things. Sure. Um, hopefully this makes sense. I think what I loved about teaching, and I think much of that carries over to being an administrator, is is the relationships. And, and relationships, as we know as edu- educators, is, is central to what we do. And, and, and really we're... We're ultimately judged, I think, on the strength of the relationships and, and what we'll, we're able to accomplish as educators in an educational system. And as a teacher, and certainly music um, is, is powerful, and I would argue uh, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, way to develop community and that spirit of, of togetherness and, and working towards a common goal. Um, building programs, which was something I've done over and over again in my career as a teacher um, really suited, I, I enjoyed that process. I think I have uh, some aptitude in that area and uh, being able to, you know, having an opportunity to take that to the next level as an administrator um, was very interesting to me and I, I, I think speaks to my strengths as well. Um, so it, in a way, I think it's a, it's a fairly seamless um, transition, uh, in my mind anyway, it makes sense that I would go from a program builder from music and arts education now to I'm uh, growing and managing even bigger programs and much more diverse programs. And you did introduce some music programs at Casa Grande, did you not? Well, all of the arts, really. It started out as a performing arts uh, lunchtime concert series called The Sounds of Casa, and this last year... uh, and I, I believe the year before as well, we included the, the visual arts as well. So now it's the sights and sounds of Casa. It's a, a Wednesday lunch um, showcase series and has, has really been amazing. And it's one of the things that I like to do in general is to showcase as many students and, and talents and the diversity that is, is so wonderful and um, inspiring for everyone and, and to give as much opportunity for students to showcase their talents as, as possible. Yeah, your campus is pretty big. How many students? We're just over 1,700 yeah, and lot. 56 acres all told. Yeah, I remember our visit there from the Petaluma Community Relations Council and it was big. <laughs> it was a big place. It's very interesting. It has almost a college feel yes, to it, or a community college campus feel to it in a way. Um, I was even doing calculate. well, how do the kids, if they have a class over here, get you know get over there in time and stuff like that? So it, it must be a, a challenge at times, uh, running the schedule and uh, moving the students, that many students from place to place. Sure, and they all do great with that, but yeah, I, I think you do have to hustle a little bit. If you're going from yeah. the fish hatchery all the way to the corner of the M building, for example. Yeah, right. So, so this uh, this transition from inside, you've been there for two years before? Three years. Three years, okay. So this transition into the office of the principal um, is really different than coming from outside and coming in and taking over a school. Uh, advantages, disadvantages to that? What do you, what do you see as it? 
Sure. Well, I can only speak from right, right. having been there, um, which is very advantageous. I, I know the staff very well. I know the program very well and the students very well. Yeah. Uh, so I'm able to uh, know which, which, who to talk to, which, which levers I might be able to, um, to pull to get something to happen, strengths and weaknesses of, of all of those facets. And, um, and really, it's, it's going to allow me, I think, to move forward with certain initiatives that I might not have been able to do if I was just brand new to the school because I have the relationships with the staff and the students and the parents um, in order to move forward and, and really um, continue the dialogue and strengthen the dialogue that we are having along certain key initiatives and, and to move forward. Any of those initiatives you'd like to highlight at this point? Sure. Uh, certainly school-wide, we have been doing some incredible work about uh, around redesigning our school-wide vision. And it was developed through a design thinking process in partnership with staff from the Sonoma County Office of Education. And what we did is we uh, employed, to a certain extent, a team of teachers and staff to interview a wide range of community members business leaders, alum, parents of alum, current parents, future parents, um, you name it, just as many diverse voices as we could, ask them a question, what skills and knowledge do you think that a high school graduate should have? And we boiled all that down into these four outcomes, graduate outcomes or, or pillars. And uh, they include uh, broad literacy, employability, civic engagement, and personal vision. So every student would have a personal vision for their future. And um, the next iteration or the next step in that process is to really do um, work towards a process where we're doing a school-wide audit of where we are or not meeting those outcomes. And then to brainstorm together and work uh, together collaboratively, again, with all of our stakeholders and, and continually doubling back and making sure we're, we're, we're including everyone in that conversation um, and so we can move forward and, and really strengthen the school. And, and so it's not just words on a, on a poster. They're not just, in the old days, we used to call them Esslers, expected school-wide learning results. Or something. It's sort of an old school way of going about things. So we could just live on the wall instead of, um, I think, central to the success of this idea is, is something where the, the students themselves especially know what these ideas are. They know what broad literacy means in several different contexts. Employability, uh, civic engagement, and they have experience with that. They have some, some real-life context that they can attach to those ideas. So it's not just, oh, that's just what the teachers, that's just what the principal wants us to think. But they also believe it and are living it and experiencing it in, in the school program and, and hopefully in their lives far beyond high school as well. That's amazing when I think back of high school for me many, many years ago. I can't imagine that uh, that, that was on the agenda uh, of the administration, even post-high school and college, in the world of, the, of education at that point, to look at the student body in that way and to uh, engage with the business community. It just, it's hard to, maybe it was happening and I didn't know about it, but it seems a very innovative and kind of where we need to be in the 21st century, given technology and 
the nature of uh, employability in our world today. No, I agree with you. And I think when, when everybody hears about that and, and we have these conversations and, and introduce these ideas and we get the same response, and, and staff agree as well. Um, and uh, what was I going to say? I think what's, what's really interesting about it is, um, and, and central to the design thinking process is you're looking for these surprising insights. And when we, when we went out and, and surveyed the community and asked all these uh, dozens and dozens of, of different stakeholders, uh, overwhelming feedback came back. What students need are soft skills. They don't know, we, we hardly heard, well, that's not true that we didn't hardly hear, but we heard far less uh, information and, and answers to the questions about curriculum or expertise in math or English or um, science, et cetera. All those things, of course, are super important, but we heard over and over again the importance of the soft skills, eye contact, accountability, showing up to the job on time, dressed professionally, things like that over and over again, um, which is, of course, the employability aspect. Can you, can you go out there and, and get the job that you want and then uh, keep that job and be, be a stellar member of that, that team? Sure, that's, and that's, of course, people skills. So exactly. In, in, the, uh, in the old days when you were just assistant principal, long time ago, uh, a couple weeks, uh, uh, you, got, you were involved in setting up with the North Bay Organizing Project, I believe, the restorative justice circles. And how did they, how did they fare, and are they still going on, and what, what's, what's happening with them? Great, yeah. So we, it's interesting how that came about. Um, it was around the time of the last presidential election, increased racial tensions nationwide, and certainly on our campus. And uh, we were struggling as an administrative team, being who we are, um, which, to be perfectly frank, Caucasian, and uh, in my case, Caucasian male, having a hard time communicating with uh, certain student groups, I guess you could say, um, or at least being on a footing with them where they would... Uh, welcome the kind of conversation that we would like to engage them in. So we have a club on campus, the Mecha, which is uh, our largely Latino student um, leadership club, but it includes other students as well. But that's their, that's their core mission for Latino leadership and, and culture, uh, awareness and development, etc. And their advisor was a, a member of a North Bay Organizing Project. At that time, it was Kareem Sanchez. And so this was actually at the, the end of my first semester at Casa Grande High School. And I pulled uh, Kareem aside and I said, hey, we really need to get something going with these students and we provide them a safe space to explore these ideas of race in particular. And Kareem was very open to the idea and uh, we put together a proposal for our site council and they provided funding to to uh, hire Kareem to facilitate a, a, a circle. At that time, it was uh, for young Latino men, boys. Um, mostly, I think at that time, it was sophomores or, or juniors and seniors. And again, it was a, a circle-based model. Um, they explored culture, history, um, spirituality in certain ways. Um, but really, it was 
um, about exploring ideas of race and their experience with race and questions around race. Um, we did the same thing last year, this not this last school year, but the previous year, uh, just with the, with them with the young men. A different facilitator this time. We have Trey Vasquez, who's taken over for Kareem. Fantastic, very successful. Uh, we expanded it to a larger group, and then this last school year, we now have uh, a group facilitated by Amanda Ayala for young women, Latino and. Uh, women and also for both groups, we've we've added students uh, of African American heritage as well. So again, it's it's not work that you can necessarily quantify, although we have done some work around that as well. But it's it's been fascinating, and I think it's been a key piece in in shifting in subtle ways the culture of of the campus um, to feel more inclusive at least they know that we are providing space for them to be listened to, which is absolutely essential. It is essential, and uh, I always marvel at the level of uh, student activism at Casa Grande. I assume that's one piece of it comes from uh, the setup that you provided there with uh, with MBOP. Uh, any, any other signs that why this activism is happening on your campus is, I guess it's pretty diverse, right? What's your percentage of uh, Latinos, etc.? What's what's your balance over there? I believe this year it's nearly parity okay. between uh, Caucasian students, white students, and, and Latino students. Forty-five percent each, and then ten percent of a mix of others. Yeah, and uh, you know. But really, back to your point about why is that happening, it's a concerted effort on, the, on our part as school leaders to provide that space and opportunities to encourage students to express themselves, to have a voice, to, to organize, and to invite uh, their thoughts and perceptions and feelings. It is their school, in a way, more than it is my school, much more. Uh, so it's absolutely key that we that we make sure that they are uh, have the opportunity to be in the driver's seat of those conversations, and so otherwise we we uh, we risk creating even more problems. Yes, of I guess you could say. Yes. Yeah. So I, and it and again back to the design thinking surprising insights. You you just never know at times what you might hear from the students, and so I invite their feedback all the time. So one one of the things I, I just a general question curiosity in my mind uh, since I'm a parent of a an elementary school student I know that parental engagement in the elementary school is uh, it's not a given because I'm sure each school would like more parental involvement at some level what happens in the high school level with parental engagement and is it uh, is does it exist in in any way and is it helpful in any way is it a is it an issue? What, what's it like in the high schools? Sure. Well, it's probably not a mystery that uh, parents typically are less engaged yes. Yes. as a student articulates through the K-12 program. However, it, it also diversifies. At Casa Grande, we have about half of the student body participates in athletics every semester. Mm. Seven or eight hundred students, that's significant. All of the different athletic contests that happen uh, over the course of the school year. We have almost 20 different sports that, that are uh-huh. that compete. 
So you can imagine that kind of parent engagement right. and talking with those parents informally at all of those different games and contests is important. Uh, we also have our more official parent groups. We have a parent boosters. We have a parent uh, teacher student association of PTSA. We have an English learner advisory council um, focused on issues for our English learner students. That meets all of these groups meet regularly. We have other parent groups that meet regularly. We have parents on our site council, and uh, well, there was one other I was going to say, um, but um, yeah. So you know, in general, it is it continues to be an issue, but um, we do everything we can to to communicate and to invite uh, parents to the table, but. I think there's some room for improvement, as there always is. It's a challenge. Yeah. So, and uh, Casa Grande's uh, received students from the other school districts uh, in Petaluma, right? And so, are there any, what's that like? Is it different getting them from the Petaluma City Schools than from Adobe and Cinnabar? What's that experience? That's an interesting question. Um, All all of the students uh, articulate to Kenilworth junior high school on the east side of town, but they do feed from several different elementary districts, Wa, Old Adobe, um, some from Cinnabar and, and Wilson and, and a handful of others. Um, so largely it's not a, an issue except when it comes to if a student um, might have special needs or if they're an English learner, the way that a district uh, deals with certain uh, intricate parts of that support system for that student might might be different from district to district. So uh, depending on what the issue it is, and most of the time there's no issue, but occasionally it just takes a little bit more digging. And if it, if they if in a perfect world, all of, although I don't know if that would be a perfect world, but if the, all of those schools were part of the same district, it would be a more seamless. Uh, communication and, and sharing of information, but I think by and large, uh, we everybody does a great job, and of course, everybody has um, the same goal in mind to serve the students. One of my goals as principal of Casa Grande High School is to uh, hopefully have a, a series of meetings, we'll start with one, where we can bring all of the school leaders together, at least from the east side, and to, to um, get to know each other and to, to develop and share our, our vision and goals together. And funding issues, are is that a district issue, a problem, or does it trickle down to the local, you know, to the particular schools, uh, the funding parts? Can you be more specific well, about funding? Well, I know in some ways federal funding is tied into attendance records, right? It's, it's tied into attendance. Well, most of our funding comes from the state. Most of the funding comes from the state. So only federal funding is tied into uh, attendance? No, the state. The state funding, yeah. okay. Yeah, that's, that's the lion's share of our funding. And then for extra special projects, we have uh, the parcel taxes here in Petaluma, which um, fund a variety of things, namely building improvements. And um, there's also a parcel tax, Measure K, that was passed a number of years ago that supports libraries and the arts and technology. Um, but again, I'm new to the job as principal, so I'm I'm learning the ropes as far as the budgets go. But overall, my assessment is that we have a strong 
um, source of funding and that our district office does a great job of, of getting as much uh, resources to the school sites as possible. And I think, and I believe that we have a very supportive community here of our school system. Yes, we uh, do. I've been, uh, over the years, occasionally we'll hear a, an older person say, oh, I don't want my taxes going. I paid that. I paid my taxes for the kids to go to school when I was younger. The fact is that this is our future generations. We have a moral uh, obligation as members of this community to... Uh, to be able to provide our schools and to provide education for our students. Absolutely. So, Dr. Dan Osterman, I want to thank you so much for being in our studio with us today and welcome to your job at Casa Grande. It will be great. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCA LP, Petaluma, California.